Well, good morning, guys. We'll be turning in our Bibles this morning to Genesis in chapter 14. And as we get there, I want to remind you, or maybe tell you for the first time, we do have a youth gathering tonight from 4 to 6. It has been 5 to 7, and we moved it from 4 to 6. Um, and then um, also another announcement is that our Operation Christmas Child boxes are due this morning. And as you notice, there are many of us that are either quarantined or have COVID, and so we're not here. So if you're watching online or if you're here and you're like, oh, man, I forgot my box, um, please call me. Um, the church number is my cell phone number. And let me know if you need somebody to come by your house and pick up the boxes, leave them on the front porch, something like that. And we'll make it happen. Uh, Dana says that we need to get the boxes turned in. <coughs> excuse me, by the 18th. And so, um, I, right, the 18th? It's Thursday. No matter what the day is, we need to turn them in. And the drop point is the Assembly of God Church uh, down here on 72. And so um, you can take them directly there. You can bring them to us. Um, we want to get as many of them turned in uh, shortly. So, and I think that's it. Is there any other announcements? I don't think so. All right, Genesis in chapter 14 this morning. So, Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book that is ancient, and yet for your spirit that makes it alive. Uh, your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, Peter said that it, it's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness, and it's in the person and the word of Christ Jesus. And so this morning we're coming to you as your disciples, uh, taking an effort, taking and making an effort uh, to be disciplined ones, to regularly read your word. And if we were only to sit here this morning and read your word aloud, we would be obedient to the command to make regular the reading of the scriptures. And so this morning we don't want to just come and read a book. We'd like for you, Father, to highlight the things that you want us to learn as your disciples and as your children. And so, Lord, without you, we're just reading another book. But with you, we're having life infused into our souls. And so, Lord, this morning we're asking that you'd fill us with your life as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Genesis chapter 14 this morning, and as we are... <clears throat> Excuse me, I got a frog in my throat. Perhaps deer season has affected my throat. Yeah, I could use a drink of water. <clears throat> Excuse me. So in Genesis in chapter 14, what we find is that um, in chapter 13, Abraham's nephew, or Abram's nephew at this point, Lot, has um, separated himself from his uncle, Abram. And he separated himself because their flocks, if you remember, their herds have gotten so large that they no longer have enough room in order to be close together. They're out of precious fields. So as a result of that, they needed to separate. And in order to separate, two people had to make a decision to go separate ways. And so as they're going separate ways... Abram, being a peacemaker and a, a follower of God Most High, looks at Lot and he says, hey, let there not be strife between us. Instead, let us separate and I will give you the preference. If you want to go to the right, I will go to the left. And if you want to go to the left, then I will go to the right. And Abram is trusting that God's promise to bless him and to make him a blessing to others will be fulfilled whether or not Lot chooses what land he's going to take. And so Lot looked around with his eyes. He chose land for himself. It says it very specifically in Genesis 13 that Lot looked with his eyes and he chose for himself where he would go. <clears throat> Abram, however, in contrast, he looked up before he looked around. Instead of looking up at the things in front of him, he looked up to the God that brought him here in the first place, and he says, where do you want me to go? And if you remember, after Lot separates, 
then Abram looks at the land and, and God says, I want you to look to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west from where you are right now. And I'm going to give you this land. Lot takes for himself a piece of land. God gives Abram the land that he wants him to have. And I want you to think about Lot for just a moment. Lot looked at the well-watered plains of the Jordan. He saw the land that it was good for his animals and his herds. He separated himself from Abram. By the way, when you're separating yourself from the guy that God promised to multiply and to bless, it seems like you're making a bad decision. But he separates himself from Abram, and then he begins to dwell in Sodom. Now it says there in Genesis 13, in verse 13, the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So this is not a good place to dwell. This is actually a dangerous place to dwell, but that's what Lot chose to do. What we're going to find out is that there's consequences for dwelling in the world. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John writes to the believers at that time, and he says, Do not love the world and the things that are in that, because the love of the world is not of the Father. And so he loves the things in the world, Lot does. And by chapter 14, what we find is that because he loves the world, he dwells in the world, he makes that where he's at home. As a result of that, he gets caught up in the things of the world and literally captured and carried away with the world to the battle that's going to ensue with these kings. He finds himself captured by the world and taken away in the world's battles. And by chapter 19, we see that he doesn't learn his lesson Abram's going to deliver him, spoiler alert, in this chapter. But in chapter 19, what we find is that he is no longer just dwelling in Sodom, but he will be sitting in the gate. And this does not mean like you go to your friend's house and they have a big corral gate at the entrance of their property and he's sitting there hanging out. This means that the city gate in all of these cities was actually the place where government took place. It would be like city hall. And they would make decisions at the city gate. So he's going to become a leader in Sodom. A leader over a wicked people that are exceedingly wicked. By the way, the Bible doesn't exaggerate. If the writers in the Bible say something was exceedingly wicked, it just means it. They're not writing in hyperbole. And so Abram, in the meantime, has been given this land. He's blessed by God. And Abram was told... Not only that he would be blessed by God, but that he would be a blessing to the world. He'd be a blessing to all those that he knows, but he would be a blessing to the entire world. I don't know about you, but we live in a small town. If God told me that, I'd be like, how in the world are you going to do that? Abram, remember, is barren. Number one, he doesn't have any land. Number two, he doesn't have any children. And number three, God's just told him, I, see the land I'm giving you? See how dusty it is? I'm going to make your descendants as many as the dust. Think about that. Lot looked over. He saw a well-watered plain of the Jordan. Good farmland. It's well-watered. Abram is given land by God that is dusty. That sounds to me like a desert. That's not where you want to grow crops or try to feed animals. But that's the thing. Everything that God gave Abram made no sense according to what he promised. But that's how God gets the glory, and we don't. And so, uh, turning to Genesis 14, finally, it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar. There's that, that place again, Shinar, if you remember with us when we studied Babylon, the beginnings of Babylon. It was a, in a place called Shinar. And later in the book of Daniel, we'll see that the plains of Shinar are where uh, Nebuchadnezzar builds the big statue that everybody's supposed to worship. And so here we have, it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Elisar, Kedar Leomer, sorry, I can't pronounce these names either, Kedar Leomer, the king of Elam, and title king, and title king of nations, that they made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, 
and the king of Belah, that is Zoar. And all these joined together in the valley of Sidim, that is the salt sea. So they're in the valley of what eventually will be the Dead Sea. Twelve years they served Kedar Laomer, who is the title king. He's like, you might say, the king of those kings. He's the main king over the rest of the kings. And in the 13th year, they said, you know what? We're tired of Kedar Number one, we can't even say his name. But number two, we're tired of paying tribute to him. So in the 13th year, they rebelled against him. How do you think that's going to go for them? He's not going to like that. People don't like giving up the people that are going to give them money. They don't like giving up taxpayers. So it's not going to happen without a fight. And so in the 14th year, Kedar Laomer and the kings that were with him came and they attacked Rephaim and Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim and Ham, the Emim and Shaveh, Kiriathim. Boy, that's a mouthful. And the Horites in the mountain of Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And then they turned back, came to En Mishpat, which is Kadesh. And if you remember Kadesh Barnea mentioned in the book of Numbers, this is the same area. And attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazizan Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, notice there's five kings there, that is Zoar, they went out and they joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Kedar Laomer, the king of Elam, the title king of nations. It says that twice. The title kings means that he's the king of that group of kings. Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Elisar. Four kings against five. So he highlights the, the odds, if you will. Four on five. Now, if you're in a schoolyard fight, numbers mean everything, right? You want four on five, you want to be the five. But now the valley of Sidim was full of asphalt pits. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, when they fled, some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. One of the psalmists interestingly wrote, I look up to the mountains, and where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And yet the people of the earth, earthly people, natural people, when they want to hide from their enemies and find a strong tower or a fortress, where do they hide? In the mountains. And then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went their way. They also took Lot, now it gets personal, Abram's brother's son who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and they departed. So verse 1 through 12, we have this battle of kings, if you will. Four powerful kings that are really in charge, and five weaker kings that are rebelling against them. Now the five kings of the plain rebel against King Shedar Laomer. I finally got it. In verse 3 through 4. Five kings are defeated by the four from Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is that region where Babylon was, where the Tower of Babel was built. So the power of the world seems to always have its headquarters around Babylon or Mesopotamia. Verse 8 through 10 shows us that the five kings are defeated by the four. So they thought, we'll get one more king and we're good. We got one more horsepower. We can be faster than them. We can be stronger than them but they lose. And so Lot's family is caught up in the world's battle. And all that they own become part of this, not only their stuff, but also them, their souls, their, their personhood, their family is taken away captive because of this battle that really should have never had anything to do with Lot. And yet Lot has placed himself in the world, so he's captive by the world's battles. And then Abram, and 13 through 16 gets notified, and he goes out to regain that which was lost. So verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, and this is the first time he's called that, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, 
brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. So an ally of Abram was caught, and he got free. And so he immediately, knowing the personal connection for Abram, says, Hey, Abram, your nephew's been taken away captive. And you'll notice there that he dwelt, this happened to be one of the neighbors of Abram, close to the terebinth trees of Mamre. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, stop there. Is Lot Abram's brother? No. But now that Lot is older and has separated himself, he's begun to look at Lot not as a nephew, but as a brother, a fellow man. And even more so, a, an obligation because this is his brother who passed away, Abram's older brother's son. He's taken him in as his own son, but now he's looking at him as an equal, and he sees that he's been taken away captive. It says, when Abram heard, sorry, my eyes aren't working, that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house. He went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. Uh, this is kind of like guerrilla warfare. If you've ever seen the movie The Patriot, this is what they're doing. They're not going to fight like the world does because they only have 318 men against four kings with their armies. And so they go out and fight against them by night. And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. So Abram goes out. As soon as he gets notified, he gets personally involved in Lot's battle, which is not even Lot's battle, and he takes his own trained servants. Notice that. He takes his army. Abram may not be called a king in this passage, but in his own right, he is a king. He's a lord over a household with 318 trained men. And so as he takes his own provisions and delivers his own nephew, he calls him brother, he, he is getting involved in other people's problems. He's, imagine this, being a blessing. Abram recognizes that all that he has has been given to him by God, and so he's going to use what God's given him as a steward, and he's going to use it to set captives free. He's going to use it to be a blessing to people that are in need. And notice also he's going to use it to be a blessing to people that are in need because of their own dumb decisions. How many of us have been blessed by God and we're like, God, use us. And then somebody comes along that has problems and they are problems that are obviously according to their own bad decisions. And we're like, well, you made your bed, you can lie in it. I'll help people that need help that it's not their own fault. You're going to spend a lot of time not helping people because you're always going to have some disclaimer, some condition. I'd help them, but they did it, and that's their fault. Is that what Jesus does for us? No. He fights our battles when we've made horrendous decisions, when he warned us that our decisions would get us in captured, captured, captivated, that we'd be put in chains because of our sin. But while we were yet sinning, Christ died for the ungodly, gave up his position as a ruler and a king, and he took his own resources and fought our battle so that we could be set free. And notice that when Jesus gets involved in a situation, the odds were ever in the world's favor, and yet he beat death. He, he didn't have as big of an army. It was one man. And he also, when he went and delivered, it made no sense statistically that he could win. And yet he won. But also when Jesus gets involved, he doesn't just recover some of the stuff. He recovers all. He redeems all. He's the only one who can. And so how can we be a blessing to others just like Jesus has been a blessing to us. That's all Abram's doing. Abram's taking what God has done for him, and he's doing it for Lot. 
And as a result of his love for Lot, he's not only going to deliver Lot, but he's also going to recover the goods of the exceedingly wicked king of Sodom. That's not fair, is it? God's love isn't fair. He, he recovers all. So in order to be a blessing to others, how can we do that? Well, first we have to recognize that we've been blessed by God. There is nothing that we have, no, no blessing that we have, no ability that we have, no resource that we have that wasn't given to us by God. James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights who treats no one with partiality. Number two, you must be willing. We must be willing to bless others even if they need help because of a history of their own bad decisions. We must be willing just like Jesus was willing. Number three, we must step out in faith. Think about it. Abram's going out against all odds to fight this battle. Abram's battle wasn't him going, hey, my guys are going to kill these guys. He was going out. He was motivated by love for Lot. He had resources, and he goes, Lord, I've got, this is what I got. And we're going to find out later, it seems like he prayed about this battle. If I win, I will not take one thing from the king of Sodom. We're going to find out that when the king of Sodom offers him goods of the world, Abram's going to deny it and say, I've lifted my hand to the Lord and said, if I win, I will take nothing from the world because I ain't doing it for money. I'm not a mercenary. And then, so he had to step out in faith to do it. Five couldn't beat four. So what makes Abram think that one could beat four? Faith. He's trusted that what God's given him will be enough. And number four, we must be willing to fight. Motivated by doing the right thing. He's just going out to do the righteous thing. Not for personal gain. If you're motivated for personal gain, what did Jesus say? He said, if you bring somebody in your house to feed them a meal, don't bring in somebody that can reciprocate. Bring in somebody that can't feed you a meal back. Then your reward will be where? In heaven. So, we must be motivated by love, not by personal gain. So, here's two totally different kings we're going to come into contact with here. Verse 17. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. So so the king of Sodom's going out to meet Abram, who's not called a king, in the valley of the kings. I love this. He's fought this battle. He's been a blessing to the world. The world is recognizing it like, hey, I want to do something for you. You've done so much for me. And they meet in the king's valley after his return from the defeat of Shedor Leomer and the kings who were with him. So notice that Abram doesn't just deliver them and take them away, but he actually defeats the, the four kings and their armies with 318 guys. Oh, wait a minute. I want to go back a step. Look at this map. I hope you can see it. So Abraham leaves Hebron. He goes to the north at night and goes as far as Dan. Do you know where Dan is in Israel? It is the farthest north you can go in Israel. He traverses the entire length of Israel to save Lot and his family and their stuff. And then when he gets to Dan and finds that they're still running away with all the goods, overnight they guerrilla warfare them all the way to Damascus, which is outside of Israel. So not only have they traveled all this distance, Apparently, these soldiers were no joke. They were like Navy SEALs. They travel all night. They go over 100 miles, and then they still got gas left in the tank. And they start chasing them, and then they chase them, and they chase them, and they battle them, and then they win, and they recover all. So I like maps. I, I like pictures. So wrong way. Back to verse 17. So the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavel, they that is the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Kedar Leomer and the kings who were with him. And then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. That's random. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, 
And blessed be God, Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. I don't want, I don't want the stuff. You can keep it, says the king of Sodom. But you can have the people, excuse me, you can have the stuff. But I want my people back. Now the king of Sodom said to Abraham this, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, verse 22, I raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap. Something as simple as a thread up to the biggest thing, a sandal strap, apparently. And that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I am the one who made Abram rich, except only what the young men have already eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Anur, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion, so his allies. And so we have two totally different kings that meet up with Abram here. We have the king of Sodom, who meets him in the Valley of the Kings. And then we have this man that's mentioned, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Now I want you to notice that all the way up to this point in the narrative, he's never even been mentioned. He comes out of nowhere and he says, here I am. And he blesses Abram. He feeds him bread and wine. And then he speaks a blessing over him. So let's start with the two totally different kings. We have Bera, the king of Sodom. Genesis 13, 13 says the people that he was a ruler over were a king. They were exceedingly wicked. So he's a king over a wicked people. Notice that it also says that in the narrative that he was one of the kings that conspired in rebellion against the most high king of their land. So he was a king of war and he was a king of rebellion, the king of Sodom. Verse 10 says in chapter 14 that king, the king of Sodom, though he was a king, he was unable to have victory over his enemies. So he's a weak king. Verse 10 and 12 says that as a result of his failure, that he lost many of his own men in the defeat of this battle. Notice also verse 21, that what he rewards with, what he has to give to those who are subservient to him, or the, those that are a blessing to him, are the rewards with earthly goods only. That's all he's got to give. And notice also verse 22 and 23, that Abram rejects rewards from these kinds of kings. He says, I, I want nothing to do with what you've given me. Because Abram knows that God's told him, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply your nation. He wants no cause for the enemies of God to be able to say, well, <laughs> Abram's only rich because I blessed him in the beginning. I was an early investor in his kingdom. So he can't say that. But then there's Melchizedek. It says that he's a king of Salem. Now many Bible scholars believe that Melchizedek was actually uh, somehow a king over original Jerusalem that the Jebusites inhabited in the Israelite land. Uh, but what's interesting is that he's called the king of Salem, which in the Hebrew, Salem is shalom, which means peace. So his name literally is the king of peace, much in contrast to the king of war that we just looked at. Number two, he's called Melchizedek. Melchizedek in the Hebrew means king of righteousness, which is interesting, but God himself is called Yahweh Sidkenu in the Hebrew. Sidkenu and Sidek are very close to the same word. Sidkenu means righteousness. Yahweh, king of righteousness, or the God of righteousness. So we have the king of righteousness, verse 18. We have the king of Shalom, the king of peace. And then it also says that he is a priest, a servant of God Most High. The word for God Most High is El Elyon, God Most High. Remember, we have this title king, Kedar Laomer, called the king of kings. And yet we have God Most High. Not a high God, but Most High God which is interesting because he's God over the king of kings. He is the king of kings. Sound familiar to any of you? Are there any parallels with 
Yeshua, Jesus. And yet he offers Abram bread and wine in verse 18. So he doesn't need bread and wine from Abram. He gives bread and wine to Abram. He brings blessings from God. He speaks a blessing over him. Verse 19, he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abraham of God most high. All these other kings are kings of regions. And yet Abram, after Melchizedek says, I'm the king of Salem, brought, he brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. He then refers to Abram as servant of God most high. We're equals is what he's saying. He says, blessed be Abram of God most high. He is a child of God. Matthew chapter 5 says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God most high. And so here we have Abram with the blessing. He brings a blessing from God. What's a priest do? A priest represents man to God, and a priest also represents God to man. And so he's this intermediary between God and man. And Abram, as a result of this, it says Abram gave Melchizedek a tithe of all. What's a tithe? Well, in the Old Testament, a tithe literally means 10%. It's a percentage of his increase. But I want you to notice that before he gives Sodom or Lot any of their stuff back that he's recovered from this battle... He doesn't give them their stuff first. He gives God of the spoils first. He gives the first fruits of the battle to God. He doesn't surrender to Sodom. He doesn't surrender to any of the other kings. He surrendered to Melchizedek. And so as he gives him a tithe of all, verse 21 says, Now the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But as I'm comparing these two kings, I want to point out that Abram makes an offering to Melchizedek, which I find very interesting. And then he gives the rest back to their rightful owner after God gets his portion. And this is how worship should be. God is the supplier of all of our needs, all of our possessions, all of our worldly goods, and all the people in our lives. And if there's one thing we can do to worship God is we can, give, we can give those things back to God before we ever use them for our own good. And if you'll do that, I guarantee that God will honor that and he'll multiply. Say you give 10%. That's what a lot of people believe God's called them to do. A lot of people also point out the fact that, by the way, the tithe that he gives to Melchizedek is instituted before the law even comes into place. So there's no law saying that for righteousness' sake you have to give something to God. And yet offering to God is always this submission to Him and saying, hey, I trust that you're going to provide for me, so I'm going to give back to you what you've given me. I always believe, personally, that 10% is just the beginning. It's not a requirement. We can't be saved by giving to God. Hopefully we know that by now. But as an act of the will... In an act of faith, we give to God of the first fruits. And then if we want to give anything above and beyond that, that's an offering. That's a free will offering. Hey, uh, God, you've blessed me so abundantly. 10% is not enough. I want to give to you more. And it's really just about giving generously because God's generously given to us. And so all that to say, let's look at two. We've looked at two totally different kings, Sodom the king of Sodom and Abira, the king of Sodom, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem. But now let's look at two interestingly similar kings. We have Melchizedek. Uh, according to Hebrews chapter 7, he's the king of righteousness. By the way, Melchizedek's only mentioned in three passages that I can think of right now. Number one, he's mentioned in Genesis 14, where we just read. Number two, he's mentioned in a messianic psalm, Psalm 110. And number three, he's mentioned in the book of Hebrews, comparing him to Jesus. And really, I believe, pointing out the fact that he might have actually been Jesus in the Old Testament. 
Many times people read the Old Testament and they go, what is this all about? Well, Sunday school answer, the Old Testament's all about Jesus. Uh, number two, he's in the Old Testament. Many people call this a, a Christology or a Christophany. He's, he's in the Old Testament, and I believe he shows up in ways where people can't recognize him, which is interesting because after the resurrection in Luke chapter 24, we were reading that this morning, Jesus shows up on the road to, uh, to Emmaus, and he meets with Cleopas and another uh, disciple, and as they're walking, they don't recognize him at all. Now, these are guys that spent three years with him, but they don't recognize Jesus, and they're like mourning the loss of Jesus and that he's just died, and, and Jesus shows up, walks with them, and they're all sad, and he's like, why are you sad? And they're like, don't you know what happened to Jesus? And he, he goes, well, don't you remember that the, the, new, the, the Bible has said from the very beginning that all these things must, he must suffer first before he can ever come and become king. And then he begins to expound from them to them from the Old Testament all the scriptures that pointed to the suffering Messiah, which they had kind of, I guess, glanced over and thought, well, that can't make sense. That, I mean, if he's going to be the Messiah, he's not going to die. And yet when they still didn't recognize him until they sat down with him that night for a meal, he gave thanks for the bread and he broke it. And as soon as he did that, they were like, wait a minute, we've seen this before. That's Jesus, and then Jesus disappears because he was trying to show them, like, I'm alive. I'm here with you. I'm Emmanuel. And so I believe that for, for Abram, he's just fought these battles, and then what this man's going to say to him in the very next chapter is, the Lord is your reward. He's your shield. You won this battle but the relationship with God is the reward in the battle. Many of us are fighting battles right now, whether they're battles of the fear of getting sick or the fear of man, if you get sick and what people are going to think or you know, going to work and keeping my job. And, and, and then, okay, here comes Thanksgiving. I'm excited, but do I get to see my family? Is it going to be weird? Uh, all the weird stuff that's going on right now is oppressive. And yet what I want to point out is that 2020 has been a year of battles, insurmountable battles, impossible-seeming battles. And the reward of the battle is not that everything will go back to normal. At least I don't think so. I hope I'm wrong. The reward in the midst of the battle is a fellowship meal with our God. Your God wants to sit down and, and be your bread and wine. Wine is a picture of joy in the Bible. Bread is a picture of sustaining life. Paul would say later that all the things that he experienced in life, he says, yet I am pressed, but not crushed. I am persecuted, but not forsaken by God. I am struck down, but I have not been destroyed. We, people, Christians, have been blessed beyond the curse. What is the curse? Death and pain and sorrow. And yet, who defeated death already? Jesus. The worst this life can throw at us is death. One of my relatives said to me last night, I'm just doing what I'm told. It's better than dying. You're going to die. You all will die. I will die. But Jesus defeated death. We will die, but then we will live. We will experience the first death, not the second death. Our hope is in heaven, people. You ain't going to die. If you're in Christ, death ain't happening. It doesn't get the final word. We are blessed beyond the curse. We are ch children of life. God's giving us daily bread to sustain us. He's giving us wine. And for some of you with a Baptist background, you're like, I can't do the wine. Wine is joy. And the Holy Spirit, how do you make wine? You stinking crush grapes. 
But without the crushing, there's no enjoyment of the wine and the flavor and the aroma and the celebration and the glow on the cheeks. God's given us that glow. Abraham defeats his enemies. He delivers Lot. The world experiences part of that victory. It gets to taste and see that the numbers don't matter. 318 against four kings. And they experience the blessing, but not the salvation. The, the king of Sodom gets destroyed, even though he tasted the goodness of God and experienced his, his deliverance. He'd never bowed the knee to God most high. And yet Abram recognizes where the victory came from. And when he got the victory, he sat down and ate with God. His, his fellowship with God was the reward. Don't miss that. Don't get caught up in the chaos and the confusion. Don't let the world stir you up to panic and fear. That's Satan. He comes to rob, kill, and destroy. But our Father, in the midst of whether you get isolated and put in quarantine, take it from the Lord. Take the time and spend it with Him. Or whether you're free to go, spend it for Him. Meet with him. Don't, because you're free, don't spend less time with Jesus. Spend more time because you're free to do so. But either way, our reward, our shield, his offering to us is himself. And so all that to say, let's go to Hebrews 7 as I'm running out of time and I got off script. Hebrews 7. Oops, almost lost it. Hebrews 7, verses 1 through, I'll go till I stop. For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God, who met with Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. He doesn't look at it as a victory. They were stinking slaughtered. This was no battle. This was a destruction. He returning from the uh, slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To him also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father. Notice this. This Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without a genealogy. Everybody else in the Old Testament has a genealogy. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils and indeed those who are of the sons of Levi that would come from the loins, forgive me, from Abram, one of the the 12 sons of Jacob, Levi, basically by proxy, Abram is giving to Melchizedek and them being a part of his lineage are essentially giving to Melchizedek. And who, the Levites who received the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, Beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So, Without reading it all, I'm going to sum that up. Uh, Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. The Messiah will be the anointed king, the Mashiach. Melchizedek is the king of peace. Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, is called the prince of peace. Melchizedek is the priest of the Most High God in Genesis 14. And the Messiah, according to Hebrews 6 and 8, is our high priest of eternity. If you had a high priest, he was only there to hear and receive and and make offerings for you until he died. And then you had to start all over with a new high priest. 
But Jesus lives to intercede for us. He knows our weaknesses. We don't have to go back and confess it again. We don't have to go back and deal with it again. Melchizedek was a king and a priest. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, Levites could only be priests, and kings came from the tribe of Judah. If a king tried to do priestly duties, he would be in sin. And yet, here we have Melchizedek, who is a king and a priest, and Jesus is spoken about in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 through 13. He would be a branch of David who would come and be a king on the throne because he would be a descendant of Judah, but he would also be a high priest forever according to the line of Melchizedek. So here again, we have this king and priest, which is better than a king and definitely better than just a priest. And then we have Melchizedek, who has no genealogy in the Old Testament. And we have Jesus, who John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was in the beginning. And it goes on to say all this poetic language, but it's saying that Jesus was before mankind, and yet he was born of a woman by the Holy Spirit. And so Melchizedek is not of the seed of Aaron. And the Messiah is not of the seed of Aaron, but he was from the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who takes away the sin of the world. And so, anyway, all this to say, then at the very end we see that he offered bread and wine, and Jesus also, according to Luke 22, offers his disciples bread and wine. And what does he say when he offers them bread and wine? He says, Take this. This is my blood. And when he says, here's the bread, he says, take this. This is my body. I'm offering you me. This bread and this wine is just, it's stuff that I'm offering myself to you. And he says that to them before he physically offered up himself to them. So verse 21 through 24, as we close, we read this. The temptation in the Christian life doesn't come in the middle of the battle, although it does. But the worst temptation is after the battle. After the victory is had, that's when the battle takes place. Notice that after the battle is won, and it's won by the the grace of God, the temptation is to give the glory to man. And so Abram is offered, um, here's the spoils from your victory. And Abram says, I'll have nothing of the spoils I want to give them to God and give you guys the rest. So after big steps of faith, be careful. After battles, be careful, especially if there's victory. Give God the glory. After big victories, be careful. After communion with God, God gives you communion. He's giving you himself. Don't get haughty. Don't get prideful. In Matthew chapter 16, this happens to Peter. Peter's on this high water mark, and, and, and he's, you know, God says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes this great confession. It's famous because Peter's always the one that speaks up first. And he says, you're God. You're, you're the son of God. You're the most high God. You're, 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 the, you're the savior. And then right after that, Jesus tells Peter, I, I'm going to suffer. And I'm going to give my life. And sinful men are going to kill me. And Peter says to Jesus, his Lord He starts to rebuke him, and he says, this is not going to happen to you, Jesus. We're not going to let that happen. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) The pride in the battle. And I say that all to say that uh, make sure that when God gives you victory through this season of life, the temptation is very strong to go and explain away all the things that right now you're experiencing going Boy, that was the Lord, because otherwise it wouldn't have happened. Later, when you're telling people the story, you're going to be tempted to go, yeah, the circumstances really worked out. Um, I was pretty lucky. You know, give God the glory. Give him the glory. It's so tempting. I've been tempted like six times this week. And, and in some cases, I've kind of backed away. I'll give you one story. I said I was closing, but I'll give you one story anyway, because that's what pastors do. I was driving the school bus this week, and uh, I'm driving it in the evening. And uh, 
They've been nuts because they just went back to school. It's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And Wednesday, they were nuts. And I don't know their names, so I can't even yell out their names. And so uh, Tuesday was kind of difficult. And then Wednesday, excuse me, Wednesday was kind of difficult. Then Thursday, not so bad. They were okay, but they were still wild. But then here comes Friday. Halloween party. Sugar. I'm like, man, if they've been bad already, here we go. So I get in the bus. I'm driving. We leave the bus barn. I'm going up to the school. And I just said, Lord, I prayed something I've heard my wife pray. Lord, would you just give us a smooth trip today? I pray that your spirit would come over this bus and make it a peaceful place. And so that was it. It wasn't a super special prayer. It was just like, Lord, help. And I think that, by the way, those, sometimes those are the most unique prayers and the most powerful prayers because we're not trying to explain God to God how to help. Lord, would you please help? I need your grace right now. So I pull up to the school. The kids all get on. They are more calm than they've ever been all the way home. And I'm driving back with an empty bus going, that was the Lord <laughs> and a sugar crash. But even then, I'm already tempted to go, it was a sugar crash. I'm explaining away God's provision. However he did it, who cares? Give him the glory. So I get back to the bus barn. And, and I asked one of the guys that I already talked to, like, hey, how'd your bus trip go? Were they nuts like we thought they were going to be? And he goes, he goes, yeah, they were still a little bit crazy. And I said, well, I have to tell you, my bus was pretty calm. It worked out. I hedged. And then at that moment, I got the check. As a matter of fact, when I was driving out, I was, and I told the full story. But man, how tempting it is to explain away God's direct intervention in our lives. Abram was able to boldly say, King of Sodom, I ain't taking your stuff. That was the Lord. It's God who's for me, who can be against me. So Father, Thank you so much for battles. And I don't know what everybody else is battling, but I know it's been very real. There's a lot of static spiritually in the air. There's a lot of people fearful. There's a lot of people telling us we're nuts if we're not fearful. Lord, help us to hear them and to pray. Help us to identify with the, the struggles of the world. But at the same time, Lord, help us to live with you as our king and no other king. Lord, you are the king of all kings. You are the Lord of hosts. You're the king over heaven and earth. So this week I pray, help us to do what it takes to recognize you as king, to make you our king, to live as if you're truly our most high king, and help us to enjoy the fellowship with you as we go. We love you. We thank you for loving us. Help us to love others and to be a blessing to them in the ways that you have been. Someone's going to come into our lives this week that is run over by the consequences of their own sin. Help us to be those that would strap on our garments, that would take together with us our, our armed servants and go and fight that battle for them, whether we think they deserve it or not, just like you did for us. We love you, Lord. Help us to reflect you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.